0: everybody. Uh, My name is Dara, and I'm going to be reading today's sermon scripture. Our reading is from Psalm 38. If you'd like to read along in the Blue Bibles on your pew, you can find the passage on page 266, 266. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. For my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, Who boast against me when my foot slips? For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me. O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: <laughs> the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Amen. Um, as Calis said, we're doing a short series on the dark night of the soul, digging into things in life that just create distance between us and God. Um, if, you have, if you haven't met, my name's Ben Wish. I'm one of our elder candidates here. Um, I'd love to to meet you afterwards if you have time. Um, the next couple of weeks, Josh will be up. He'll be talking about doubt and suffering. What to do when when doubt and suffering kind of creates that distance? I get the the fun topic of talking about our sin. When when our actions are the cause of that distance, um, what do we do? So. Let's let's pray together, and we'll dive into it. Father, sin uh, sin is a heavy topic. Um, thank you for psalms like this that carry so much emotion and give words to the pain of life in ways that help us grow in our knowledge of and our love for you. Um, meet us today. I just ask that you will move move me out of the way and speak speak through the words that I have to all of us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Wayne Grudem, professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary, defines sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Now, it's easy to hear that definition and just kind of nod along, right? It's academic sounding, it talks about us failing, it talks about God's law, and it just kind of makes sense. Um, I like this definition, but I also wanna make sure we don't move, move through it too quickly, because if we're really gonna understand how sin impacts our life, then we have to understand what it is and where it comes from. So we have a slide. We'll have that up on the screen kind of while while I walk through this. First, any failure to conform to God's law in act or action. That fits, right, with even like a secular definition of sin. I I did something wrong. That's a sin. I stole a candy bar. God says, thou shalt not steal. I committed a sin. Pretty easy. Secondly, any failure to conform to God's law in attitude. That goes a little bit deeper. It extends beyond actions, right? So if I'm, if I'm looking at the people around me and I think I'm better than them, right? If I carry this haughty and prideful attitude, that is sin, right? I don't have to take any action on that attitude. Simply the belief, the true belief that the chiefs are superior than the Seahawks and so I'm better than you. <laughs> um Right, it's sin. God created all of mankind in his image, equal in dignity, value, and worth. And if I think myself better than someone else, I am devaluing someone that is created in the image of God, and that is sin. Finally, any failure to conform to God's law in nature. Now, this this gets to the core of who we are, right? The nature of who we are as human beings. Mark chapter seven, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and he goes through, tells them what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and the list goes on and on and on. What Jesus is telling us and telling them is that our very nature is corrupted. The motivations of our heart, when not aligned with God, produce sin in our lives. In the beginning, God created everything, and it was good, and then it was broken by sin, including us, including our hearts, including our very nature. Our nature as human beings fails to conform to God's law. You walk all the way through that definition of sin, What starts out as a simple definition, turns into a pretty intense and harsh reality about the state of all of mankind, about the state of all of us, right? I like this definition of sin because I believe it matches the, the level of intensity that Jesus has when he talks about sin as well, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, Jesus spends a few verses talking about lust. He says, if, if anyone looks at a with, with lustful intent, they've already committed adultery with, with them in their heart, right? Jesus takes something as as harmless, as a lingering gaze, some arousing thoughts, and says that's the same thing as just committing the actual act. He goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, Jesus isn't prescribing self-mutilation, but what he's telling us is what Paul very simply states in Romans, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, hate the evil, and cling to the good. God prescribes this level of intensity in our approach to sin because he knows what the result will be in our lives if we persist in those sinful patterns and he wants something better for all of us. Uh, My wife, Mallory and I, we have three boys, uh, Liam, Lake, and Sam. Uh, Sam is three years old. If you ever wanna see the effects that persisting in sinful patterns can have in the life of a person, hang out with a three-year-old for a few weeks. Several weeks ago, Sam was having a rough morning. Um, not an uncommon occurrence in our house, right? He's three. Um, but this one, it really stuck in my head. And, and even before I knew he was going to be preaching, I was like, this is going to be a sermon illustration. I need to remember this. <laughs> um, it was a Sunday morning, uh, and we were getting up and getting ready for church. I asked him what he wanted for breakfast. Hey, would you like cereal or eggs? His response was, pancakes. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> I said, sorry, we're not making pancakes this morning. Would you like eggs or cereal? Now, all of the wisdom in his three-year-old mind, he decided the most reasonable way to respond was to just scream as loud as he could. No words, just ah! That's it. And then he stared at me. Um, now, Sammy has a great, like, death stare face. He drops all emotion, just looks at you, and just stares. If he really is into it, he'll even, like, give you a side eye. He'll do, like, tilt his head down and look up, or do one of these. Great, Um, it's completely ridiculous, right? Because he's this tall, I could pick him up with one hand, but it doesn't stop him from trying to intimidate us. So told him again, hey, that's not an okay way to respond, we're not gonna scream about pancakes. He did again, doubled down, yelled again, and then the death stare. right, at that point, I'm trying to eat, Mallory's trying to eat, the other two boys are trying to get ready, so we said, okay, you need to go to your room, you need to calm down, and we'll talk about this next 45 minutes was us getting ready, kids getting ready, trying to go in and bring him back to reality, and just this constant cycle. Through that entire stretch of time, every time I'd step into his room, he would yell, you're stupid, I hate you, go away. Right? I'd, I'd try to move closer to him, try and help him. You're stupid, I hate you, go away. As soon as I left the room, dad, I love you, come back. I'd step back in, you're stupid, I hate you, go away. Just this back and forth, this back and forth. Now he's three, he doesn't understand all of this, but what was happening, he felt in his heart the break in relationship that his sin was causing, right? He told me I was stupid, he told me he hated me, he told me he wanted me to go away, but then as soon as I left, he noticed my absence and he wanted me back because he knew he needed help. His sin was making him miserable, but he was so entrenched in it, anytime I would try to help him, he would push me away again. How often is that us? How often are we the toddler throwing the temper tantrum? Most of us have matured beyond the shriek and stare down, right? We follow that same pattern. It's just a little more sophisticated because we're a little bit older. We know what expectations are. We know right. We know wrong. But we can't stop doing the wrong. It just sucks us in until we're stuck in that pattern. I love my sin and I push God away. I need God to help me, so I cry for him to come back. But then it comes back around and I push him away again. Is it having a few too many to drink? Sharing stories about friends and him that was behind their back, putting them down, puffing yourself up, clicking through pornographic pictures on a screen. That, that one relationship that we know is bad for us, but we just keep going back. Losing our temper, responding to our kids with a scream when they scream. Right? We know it's harmful. We know it creates distance in our relationship with God, but we just can't break it. Go away, come back, go away, come back. Why? Why? Why is there this tension? Why do we play this game? Hating our sin, loving it, hating it, but then we love it again? There's, I think there's some reasons there. One in particular, the reason that patterns of repetitive sin are so hard to break is because we are protecting them in our heart. We're holding them back from the transforming power of God's love and mercy and grace. Do you ever feel when you you might make a simple mistake, you say something kind of dumb and it's very easy. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. Very quick, very easy to repent, to apologize, to move forward, right? The little one-offs that, that don't really kind of have that stronghold, those are easy, right? It's not hard to, to ask for forgiveness, to repent of those sins. The little one-off here or there, whatever it may be, I feel that all the time. But then there's those things that just, that just suck me in. I just get stuck. I think there's there's a reason for that, right? All throughout the Bible, we see the language of darkness and light being used in discussions around good and evil, God and Satan, sin and obedience. First John 1, 5 says God is light, in him is no darkness at all. So when we sin, we're stepping into that darkness and to fix relationship with God, we need to repent and step back into the light. Again, with with the simple one offs, it's, oh, we took a step over here, just need to come right back. Simple, easy. Those besetting sins, those repetitive sins, the ones that we cling to, those are different, right? If light shines into the darkness and illuminates everything, when we have that sin we keep returning to, we're putting up walls that block that light. So when we return to it, it's not just a simple step. It's no I'm gonna go, I'm gonna hide behind this wall. I'm gonna crush down in this cave. I've built this stronghold where God's not allowed. And we get stuck. We get stuck because he can't come. We won't let him come and help pull us out. We step into that familiar place, we get inward focused, we get consumed by it. We're like like Gollum with the one ring, right? We take our eyes from him, we look down and we're just focused on our precious and we're so consumed by it, we're crouched down, hidden in the darkness. We won't let him, God, in and then that darkness penetrates our soul and creates this distance and this depth and this weight that we feel, right? It's what David is, is describing here in Psalm 38, okay? I want to read some of the things that he said and just kind of put yourself in his place. Think about past, present, whatever it is, whatever's in your head right now, the things in your life that you know that stick in your head as I'm talking about this. Think about just the weight and hear, hear David's language. Your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. My iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. I am feeble and crushed. I groan, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. Can you relate? Do you feel that? What about the stabbing conviction, right? Those those feelings of guilt that are just a gut punch. Do you carry that? Do you feel that? There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. My sides are filled with burning. I am utterly bowed, bowed down and prostrate. My nearest kin stand far off. Do you feel, feel the hurt that we cause each other? Sometimes it seems like no matter what we do, right? We can't, we can't break, break free, can't break through. Here, here again, here David, the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. David sees it, he knows it, he, he can put words to it. I'm like, I, I, I know what it is, but I'm deaf, I can't hear it, right? What do we do? David finishes this Psalm. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Psalms like this are are really helpful for me because they give words to the angst that I feel. Um, I'm not the most emotionally aware or expressive person. My wife has been known to describe me as a robot. Um, But when I read a Psalm like this, it it put words to the weight that I feel, and it's it's so helpful. Um, Theologian D.A. Carson also puts language to kind of what's happening in this Psalm. No one is more miserable than the Christian who for a time hedges in his obedience. He does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures, and he does not love Christ enough to relish holiness. He perceives that his rebellion is iniquitous, but obedience seems distasteful. He does not feel at home any longer in the world, but the memory of his past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing with the saints. He is a man most to be pitied. Trying to live with one foot in each world alienates us from both, and makes us feel miserable and alone. Again, what do we do? How do we break free? We know we've built these walls, we know we have these strongholds, we know what the expressions of our sin are, but how do we How do we get past that? One of the books that we read as part of the eldership process that we're going through is, is a book by Robert Thune called Gospel Eldership. Um, in that he has a chart, and we also have a slide, defining what he calls source idols, I think is, is very is incredibly helpful. So the idea behind these source idols is that the sins we commit are the byproduct of a heart that is pursuing something other than God. When we lash out in anger, it's not just because we're short-tempered, there's something deeper causing that response in us. Sins that we lump into the category of lust often have their root in something totally different. The lust is just the sinful expression of the idol that we have in our heart. To a lie in a difficult situation, gossip about someone behind their back, digging into what's going on, those source idols in our heart can help us identify why we struggle. Now, obviously it's important to, to eliminate, identify and eliminate the sins themselves, but if all we focus on is just the action we're taking, that's just the symptoms. We aren't treating the root cause, we aren't treating the actual sickness, we're just dealing with the symptoms. So the four source idols identified here, comfort, approval, control, and power. It's not necessarily an exhaustive and complete list of everything our hearts long for that causes us to sin, but more often than not, we can trace some sin patterns in our life back to one or two of these four things, and doing the work to kind of walk through and identify this is also gonna train us, train our hearts, train our minds just to look at our sin and to walk it backwards to what are we actually pursuing with this sin? Are you someone that's like, are you defined by the people around you? Are you afraid to speak up to stand up for yourself because you're terrified of rejection of being alone? When we're defined by relationships, oftentimes that's, we just have this need for approval. We would rather be abused than rejected because we have to have that approval from the people around us. If people don't like me, there must be something wrong with me, right? That's, that's, that's really what's at the core of that. God says, I know you, I created you. I knit you together in your mother's womb and I don't make mistakes. I made you who you are. You are enough, you are loved exactly the way you are, all your faults and shortcomings included. Christian, if you find yourself constantly in need of someone else or constantly in need of a relationship to feel valued, God wants you to know that he approves of you exactly the way that he created you. You don't have to look to someone else for your identity. Personally, um, power is one of the source titles I struggle with the most frequently. I, I believe that God has given me some natural leadership strengths and he's given me a desire to lead and he's called me to use those gifts, right? For the good of the people around me at work and at church, for my family. A desire to lead coupled with a biblical pursuit of servant leadership is a gift from God for the world. There are several places in scripture that talk about that. Uh, First Timothy says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he aspires to a noble task. Ephesians talks about teachers being given to the church for, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? Godly servant leadership is a gift from God. The temptation for me is in that pursuit of, of leadership and, and having those, um, those responsibilities is to make it more about my reputation. I want to be known. I want to be respected. I want to be viewed as a good teacher, a good preacher, whatever the case may be. I want to carry some, some sense of power. So when, as I'm preparing to preach or something like this, one of my constant prayers that I have to always be asking God for is just give me humility, give me humility. Because if I get up here and all that happens is I give you a really entertaining performance and everyone's excited and happy, but have no idea what I talked about, that, that defeats the whole purpose, right? That became about me, became about my power, became about me puffing up and, and having fun. Right. Maybe we all laugh and have a good time, but that, that perverts what this godly gift that God has given me, it perverts it into my heart, idol, my source of I want to be respected and have that power. Right. One more example, an area of sin that's rampant in our society today. Right, Outside, inside the church, pornography, sexual infidelity, sexual fantasy, whatever the case may be. When it comes to patterns of, of sexual sin and any of these source idols, and honestly more, can come into play, right? Sexuality is such a core thing of who we are that it's easy for it to get twisted into in a lot of different ways. Um, for some it's it's comfort, right? A hard conversation, a hard week, stretchful situation, whatever it is, I just I need I need a release. I need to go relax. I need something, zero effort, I just need to have some kind of a some kind of a way to to have some comfort. Right? Life is stressful, I need a release. Right? Others it's it's chaos, right? Job is hard. Boss is hard. I have no control. Things are just chaotic. I, just, I need some sense of control, right? So I can, I can click through these images or I can create this fancy scenario in my head that I am in complete control of, right? This is all crazy and out of control. I can control this. I can own this. This is mine, right? God is powerful. God is in control. God can give rest. When situations in our life make us feel chaotic or powerless, what we need the most, what we need the most is to rest in the truth that the good and perfect God of the universe is all powerful, so we don't have to be, right? When my power is threatened, when people don't know who I am, they don't recognize my name, they don't respect my authority, or they don't laugh at my jokes, right? That's okay. God is powerful, I can rest in that, right? He is in complete control, so we don't have to be. Work is chaotic, boss is chaotic, my kids don't listen to me, that's okay, right? God has a plan and a purpose and he's walking us through those things for a reason. And I can lay down my need to have control and trust and rest in his perfect control for my life. God can be, wants to be, and is the only one who can satisfy the longings in your heart and replace them with joy. John 15, 9 and 11, 9 through 11. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. We don't have to obey to be loved. God loves you regardless, right? But when we do, when we do obey, when we do abide in that, then we are laying down the things that, that tear us down and we're following him and we feel his love. We feel the joy that he brings, the peace that he brings, the life that he brings. That's what we were created for. We were created to abide in the love of God. So where do we start, right? We know we have these strongholds. We know there's, there's these things in our lives that are, that are causing us to go back to them time and time and time again, but it's so hard. How do we break free? peeling back the onion, right? Peeling back the onion to get the source idols is really hard work. First, start back at the beginning, right? Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness hovered over the face of the waters, right? What did God do? He spoke. He said, let there be light and there was light. Let there be flowers, let there be trees, let there be things that swim and it was good. Let there be apples and pomegranates and olive trees and Kansas City barbecue, and it was great, <laughs> right? Then he gets to mankind. With mankind, God pauses. He doesn't say, let there be man, right? He says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and he formed mankind from the dust of the earth. He got his hands dirty. With everything else, he just said, let it be, let it be, let it be, and it happens. With us, with mankind, with humans, he got down and he dug in the dirt, and he formed our body, he formed our faces, and our organs, and our toes. Don't know why he gives toenails, but you know. And then, how did he give us life? Again, he didn't say, "Let this thing come alive." No, what? What did he do? He breathed into our nostrils. There aren't a lot of people that I would let do that to me, <laughs> right? There, there's an intimacy there, right? He he formed us, he made us, and then he breathed directly into us to give us life. And then he placed man and woman in the garden of Eden and he walked with them. Since the beginning of time, mankind has been created for relationship, right? He formed us, he breathed into us, he put us together. And even think about it, right? We, we are meant to live with each other, not alone. Before sin entered the world, God saw Adam in the garden by himself. And he said, it's not, that's not good. Man shouldn't be alone. And he gave him a helper. Before sin, he just, hey, you know what? You need, you need relationship. You need people around you. You need support. You need help, right? Fast forward, Jesus on the cross. God knows we can't do this alone, right? Left to ourselves, we're just going to spiral further and further inward. We've all experienced that. We've all felt that. That's just what's going to happen, all right? He didn't leave us there. Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice that all that had to happen there was with that. There had to be a payment. We sinned, we needed a payment. Jesus didn't just come to the earth for three days, die, raise and go back, right? He came as a baby and he lived an entire lifetime. Why? If all that was needed was a sacrifice, why go through puberty, right? Why deal with sunburns and scraped knees and these carpenter splinters and banging your finger with a hammer and all the things that come with that. Why bother living an entire lifetime if all that was needed was a perfect sacrifice? Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 answer that. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus lived a human lifetime on earth to give us an advocate that understands what it means to live life as a human. God loves us so deeply, so fully, that he dealt with all of it. He dealt with not having air conditioning in the summer. He dealt with dust in the desert. He dealt with all of the things so that you know you are always welcome at the throne of grace. You can have confidence to draw near, to say, I hate you, go away, dad, come back. I hate you, go away, dad, come back. And every single time he will, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that you'll be accepted, loved, and helped time and time and time again. The other thing that we need to do, and this, is, this one can be hard, involve the people around you that you trust, tell them what's going on, invite them into your battle against sin, right? Galatians chapter six begins with, "'Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are called as a community of believers to step into the sin of others, carry that burden with them and help pull them out of those strongholds that they build in their heart. That is a command from God for the church. Help each other beat sin. Hebrews 3, we're told to encourage one another every day so that our hearts aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are not meant to do this alone. We can't do this alone, right? Again, God gave Adam a helper even before sin was was a thing. He said, "You, you can't even care for this garden alone. You need help. We need help. Okay. If humans need another people before sin even entered the world, how much more are we gonna need that today? right, how much more do we need that today? we get close to the end, I want to say one word about about guilt and shame, right? Sin brings both into our hearts. They can be a gift that points us back to Jesus or they can be a weight and a weapon of the enemy. Every person person in the world is either guilty and forgiven or guilty and condemned, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are guilty and forgiven. If you don't, you're guilty and condemned, right? God has given us guilt so that we know when we've transgressed his law. We know that, hey, I've stepped outside and I need to pursue reconciliation. There are, there are lines. If, there, if we didn't have the law, if we didn't have guilt, then we would never know. If we were going outside the lines or staying within them. Guilt, that initial feeling of guilt is a gift from God to let us know we need to, to fix something, right? Something's broken, we need to be reconciled. We need to, fi- we need to fix it. Shame for our sin produces repentance and gratefulness, right? Godly shame produces repentance because we're ashamed of of the pain it causes. We're ashamed of of what happens, and so we want, want to go and to fix that. But when we sit in those things, right, often we feel buried by it. Do you ever feel buried by the guilt and shame that your sin brings? Do you feel accused? You're so guilty, God can't love you. You're so guilty, that person will never forgive you. You are way too guilty, right? That is a lie. That is a weapon of the devil meant to keep you from God, because when we feel that accused, we feel that accusation, we feel that guilt and we carry it, we feel like we can't go to God, right? We feel like, ah, I'm too guilty, I gotta clean this up first. I'm gonna take take a week, I'm gonna take two weeks, I'm gonna clean this thing up first, and then I'll go, I'll go back to God, right? But we can't, we need him to come do the work to clean it and then help us walk through it. Shame can bury us. It can bury you because shame says you are not Worthy as a human being, right? Guilt is something I've done. Shame is who I am as a person. When we sit in shame, we are sitting in the accusation of the devil that our sin makes us less valuable to God. Makes it, it challenges our identity, challenges who we are, right? When Sammy was in the middle of his temper tantrum, he was creating a distance in our relationship, right? His sin was hurting himself. It was hurting me, and it was putting up the barrier between us, right? Our relationship was suffering. He was guilty. It was a shameful sin. But his identity didn't change. His value didn't change. His worth didn't change. Sam is my son. Doesn't matter how much he's sinning, he is my son. He was my son from the moment he was conceived. He'll be my son until the end of our lives. Regardless of what he does, he says how hopeful he is. He is my son. His identity as my son is secure. Nothing can change that ever, right? You are the pinnacle of God's creation. Right. he formed you, he breathed life into you. If you accepted Christ as your savior, you've been adopted into the family of God. He has welcomed you in, you are his son, you are his daughter and he holds the keys, okay? There's no sin that can kick you back out and God has promised that he will never leave us, never forsake us and always welcome us when we approach him for grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can call you father. Thank you that you open your arms to us, to your children, and are always ready to help in, in times of greatest need. Thank you that you don't get fed up with our persistent sin, our immaturity. Thank you that you don't cast us away from your presence. Thank you that regardless of what we are doing, our identity is solid, our identity is secure, and you want to walk with us. Lord, we, we need you to be Lord. We need you to be Lord of our lives, Lord of our hearts. We need you to break down the walls. Um, but but today, Lord, we just, we approach Your throne, for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, because we need to be reminded that we are worth something. We are your creation. We are your family. You love us unconditionally, no matter what, all the time. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings,